Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, Sandman number 18, A Dream of a Thousand Cats. Cover date, August 1990. Art by Kelly Jones as Pencils, uh, Malcolm Jones III as Inker, Todd Klein doing letters again, and colors by Daniel Vazo um, and Karen Berger as editor per usual with Tom Perry as assistant editor. So this is a really awesome issue. But before we get into it, I do want to take a second here to let listeners know that over on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, uh, Brandon and I have just started covering Wolf's novel piece. Uh, and I bring this up because this is one of Neil Gaiman's favorite books, right? He mentions this book, he mentions Peace and Book of the New Sun all the time, and even wrote some of the material for the new edition that Brandon and I are reading from. I forget if it's an introduction or an afterword, and I don't have it next to me. But uh, at any rate, we'll be talking about that at some point. And so if you have been thinking about checking out Gene Wolfe, because Neil Gaiman talks about him incessantly, but you have not done that yet, now is a great time, because this is one of the two books that Gaiman really loves. And, and I will say that Peace is an absolutely gorgeous book. I mean, the prose is just dazzling. It's this uh, Proustian American Gothic story that maybe has at least one ghost in it. Uh, and we would love to have you reading along with us. And I've uh, never read that. Uh, so uh, I hope other listeners similarly join me as reading this for the first time and perhaps discussing some things on the forum. Right. Well, and live on the air right now, Brent, I will uh, half-heartedly anyway commit you to uh, perhaps joining us to actually to talk about what Neil Gaiman has to say once we've all, uh, all three of us read the book. Since we, we, we intentionally have not read what Neil Gaiman has to say yet, so it doesn't color our chapter-by-chapter chapter or really section-by-section section reading of the text, but uh, may turn out that we'll need some of your expertise or at least want your, your voice on that episode. So uh, I don't know. Stay tuned, listeners. But let's set our sights here on A Dream of a Thousand Cats, because this is an issue that I have been really looking forward to. Uh, it is probably one of my favorite issues of Sandman. And uh, after the intensity of last time, after the, the intensity of Calliope, I think this is going to be a largely upbeat and pretty refreshing story. And I'm glad for it. Yeah, it's a really nice chase, a uh, really nice change of pace from Calliope and frankly, from kind of even where we were with kind of the, some of the heady ideas in doll's house. I mean, this is kind of a resetting back to normal. Um, and we have n almost none of the familiar characters that we've seen before. Um, there's a couple we'll talk about who pop up, who are clearly personifications of some things that we have seen, but, uh, otherwise we're dealing with a whole new cast here. I did want to mention before we continued, uh, cause I had failed to do so in the initial credits. Uh, the original colorist for this issue was Robbie Bush. Robbie Bush did a lot of the coloring for, uh, Sandman, particularly the initial issues. So, um, credit where credit is due there, but to kick things off, Glenn, um, we've got some kitty cats. Um, <laughs> And there are some humans, and we start by hearing the humans talk at the top about, you know, putting the little kitty cat down and stuff. Um, I do want to mention that uh, in interviews, Kelly Jones um, has talked about the decisions to deliberately make sure everything is from the cat's viewpoint. So depictions of humans generally throughout this issue are all kind of f from the floor level because that's where the cat is in most of these in instances. 
Right. It all kind of looks like that famous shot from Citizen Kane, right? With this crazy angle looking up at the humans. Yeah, this is a story about cats, and it is a story about cats from the point of view of cats. And really, the the entrance to this feline world that is going to cover the whole story is just this this little kitten who has just been adopted by this uh, this very nice couple. They're very nice to the cat, and they also seem to have a pretty good uh, marriage or, or whatever their relationship, their, whatever their romantic relationship is. They seem to have a pretty good one uh, as as well. But left alone in its bed, this uh, this kitten that night is is later disturbed by an older cat who talks to it through the closed window. And this this older cat, this you know, full grown cat as opposed to a kitten, uh, wants to bring the kitten to hear uh, another cat, a strange cat who is visiting this area. Uh, He wants to bring the kitten to hear this cat when she speaks to their local uh, community, their local cat community, I guess. I don't know. Catterhood, is that a a phrase? I'm sorry I said (laughs) that. I'm regretting that immediately. But uh, there's an immediate obstacle here, which is that the kitten has to jump from an upstairs window onto a tree in order to get out. And we also learned that the, the older cat has some idea of what the speech is going to be about and is already unpersuaded by the argument, but is just going out of curiosity, right? And of course, curiosity, one of the uh, hallmark characteristics of cats. And this is all really just the the prologue, right? So this brings us to the the title page, which is this two-page splash panel of dozens of cats congregating in a hillside cemetery. I mean, it is very gothic looking. I mean, it's just really this necropolis. And I have to say that the art so far, just these first few pages, has been magnificent. Yeah, it, it's really great. Um, and I do want to mention uh, the cemetery. Apparently, according to the anna- according to the annotated Sandman, um, the image of the cemetery is based on Highgate Cemetery in Hampstead Heath, London. So, um, for any of you who are able to get to the area or who have been there, then that's uh, kind of what the artist reference apparently was. I do want to talk a little bit about kind of the word balloons and the annotated Sandman, as well as the Sandman Coman- Companion, both. Um, comment on some uh, instructions that Neil had in the script regarding the word balloons. And to paraphrase, he didn't want the cats to have word balloons the way humans do, where it just comes across like normal speech. You also didn't want it to seem like kind of the cloudy kind of billowy, like thought balloons. Cause then it looks like the cats have telepathy. Um, and because this story is not written by HP Lovecraft, the cats probably <laughs> do not have telepathy. They maybe have other magical powers, but telepathy is not amongst them, nor are they flying to the moon. So Both Neil and Kelly Jones worked on how to kind of give a unique word balloon here. And that's where they've settled kind of on the, there's kind of a large kind of dots or oval kind of things leading to the actual word balloon and connecting it to the speaker, uh, which I think works really effectively in kind of differentiating how cats sound when talking to each other in the comic versus anything else we see, not only in this particular issue, but just in the run of Sandman and in the run of comics as a whole. It's just, this is a very unique way of approaching the problem. Right. These cats, as we're reading this story here on the page, they are speaking English to each other. But if we actually were in this story, right, if we happen to have been out for a walk here in uh, this town in in England, uh, if we'd happen to have been out for a walk uh, around midnight or so, whenever this is happening at night, we just would have heard a lot of meowing. 
right? And and that's what this is meant to represent. The, there's also some really cool stuff that Gaiman does with the, their speech itself, the, the vocabulary. For example, uh, they have a different word. Cats have a different word for window. They don't know the word window. They call it a clear hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a couple other examples of that as well. So he is trying to build a, a, a fantasy world for these cats or a fantasy culture for these cats, right? That they have a culture that is uh, distinct from the human culture around them. And I'm really interested to hear Klinger say that this is meant to be Highgate Cemetery in London, which is a place that I've been a few times. It's this beautiful Victorian cemetery. I think Marx is actually buried there and Dickens, I'm pretty sure as well. It's been a few years since I've been there, so I don't quite remember who all the famous graves that we were running around visiting were. And it is really gorgeous. And it does look like this quite a bit in terms of having all of these statues, especially a lot of angel statues, but also these mausoleums and also looking kind of overgrown. But really what I was thinking about when you were telling us this, Brent, is I don't remember actually where the graveyard book takes place. And we'll hopefully cover that story or hopefully cover that novel someday because I really love that. But I don't remember. Is that supposed to be Highgate as well? I think it actually might be. I can't recall. Well, in any case, it's absolutely stunning here. And I love, I love the art that we will uh, talk about our favorite panels at the end. So I, said, so I said earlier that everything that we've had so far has been a prologue, and maybe that's true. But really, it's probably better to say that what we've gotten so far is the first part of a frame narrative, because what this issue is really going to focus on is this visiting cat who has a story to tell. That's really what this episode is. And so the kitten and all of these other cats who have congregated to meet, to to listen to this other cat, are going to hear a speech from her. And this speech is about liberation. It's about liberating cats from their dependence on humans. And she has a plan, which we will get to later. Uh, but for now, really, let's focus on her life, because that's how she starts. That's kind of the entry into what she's going to be getting at here. And her story starts when she met a tomcat and then later gave birth. But her human owners, or really maybe we should just say one of her human owners, is upset about this because this cat is a purebred Blue Point Siamese. And now, instead of being able to breed her with another cat like that and sell those kittens for a lot of money, all they have now are some mongrels from an orange tabby. And so the sky rounds up the kittens, which, to be clear, he rounds up the children of the narrator and throws them in a lake to drown, right? He murders her kids. And she is grief-stricken, but she's also angry about this. And here's what she says. I knew then that I had been fooling myself, that we were subordinate, that while we lived with humanity, we could not call ourselves free. And she prays to the darkness, to the night, to the carrion kind. She prays to the king of cats. And then she dreams. And we'll get that dream next. But I think we should pause here and take stock of the brutality in this story, right? This is the second issue in a row with some real human ugliness. There really is. It it's not it doesn't hit us as kind of as much of a visceral gut punch as many of the things throughout Calliope. But this particular page where we see, and we've got an image that Kelly Jones does of a little baby kitten looking adorable, being put into a sack and then cut to the next page where there's that sack with a rock on it is being tossed into a body of water. I mean, this is kind of a terrible traumatic thing 
um, for this cat to be experiencing. And it's interesting when we cut to then the humans, you know, reacting to how the cat is reacting because the cat is seeming sad. And the male human says, for God's sake, Marion, it's not even as if she understands. I mean, look at her. She's probably relieved. She practic- She's practically a kitten herself. She would have exhausted herself, which is just, it's a lot of excuses for the terrible action that this human took in order, you know, and he's trying to justify it after the fact. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of a hard couple pages relative to the rest of the comic, which is just kind of fun. It's a very fun comic. Um, and this, this com this particular issue does rank among many people's favorite issues of Sandman. Uh, in some cases, it's also an introductory issue that a lot of people, when they're recommending Sandman to people who have not read it at all, then they'll, you know, say this is a place to start. I mean, this whole volume, um, of, uh, dream country is, has that, but, this story in particular does not have kind of the harshness or the gut punch of Calliope, nor do you need to be familiar with, you know, the three or anything like that. It's really just the story of the, the story that, as you said, the narrator Siamese is telling is really what's going on here. Right. And, and where this type of human ugliness, this brutality, this, this murder of these, these kittens feels different from what we got in Calliope is because this guy who does this, who throws these kittens into the lake to to drown is not the protagonist of our story. The story is not about him. This is a tragedy that has happened to our narrator. And and so it acts more as as backdrop and acts as character motive and, and also gets us to buy into it. In fact, this is we feel for the the cat. We feel for the narrator in this in this moment because we know that she has had her her children stolen from her and then murdered by someone who is supposed to be her guardian someone she loved and trusted someone she gave kindness and and cuddles and purrs to right is what she tells us and there's also something cool here that Gaiman is doing we do get in this issue we get uh two human couples uh more or less the same. It's a man and a woman. They seem to be about the the same age. They don't seem to have any children, but they have a cat. And the couple that really loves their kitten and is interested in seeing their kitten as a person is also the couple that seems to actually have a really good partnership. This couple, at least where one of them anyway, does not treat the cat like a person and treats the cat like some kind of investment, some kind of property, uh, seems to be also kind of a horrible partner to this woman in his life, his wife or girlfriend. He gaslights her in this moment, right? By trying to convince her that actually this was a good thing to have done for the sake of the cat and convinces her at the very least to say out loud that he's probably right, even if maybe he's not. And I, I hope he's not actually convincing her that that's true, right? So so Gaiman shows us the way that whether or not you actually love your cats can tell us a lot about who you are in other types of relationships too. And I hadn't really thought of that, Glenn, but that's a good point is that we do see very Stark differences between the two couples from what little we see of the the couples. I do want to pause here and reflect a little bit on some of the art and Kelly Jones's work here. I think that um, Kelly Jones did a great job um, as as well as 
you know, support from the um, inker and um, the colorist, but particularly uh, Kelly Jones, I think it's a lot of the credits of making the cats look like cats. And given that we have these, you know, slightly different word balloons, but they're speaking in normal, complete sentences in ways that sometimes people don't, including myself normally. Um, <laughs> we nonetheless, we don't have like anthropomorphic physical representations of the cats. The cats look like cats. Um, and further, Kelly Jones um, in the Sandman Com Companion by High Bender, it notes and quotes him talking about how um, he tried intentionally to even try to make each of the cats look a little distinct. And I think that, that works. I never found myself, and I, it wasn't until after when I was reading this again a second time recently, um, when it occurred to me that I never was confused about which cat it was that was doing something in a way that I maybe would be confused about like, you know, which person it is who's doing something or, um, uh, when watching a television program sometime when there's just a whole collection of, you know, white dudes who all have the same, you know, brown colored hair that's cut the same way. And I'm initially like, I can't remember which of these is which at this point. <laughs> um, which um, eventually I work out and that's kind of me working through it. But in this case, I don't have that problem. And at all points, I know who these cats are and I believe it. And there's a lot of personality that comes across in these things. The image of the Tom cat um, after he and the Siamese cat um, copulate, then kind of him slinking off into the, into the dark, but kind of throwing his head back. Um, in kind of a playful yet, you know, long, there's a lot going on in that panel. And then just how sad the Siamese eyes looks as she's talking about how terrible it is that she feels the loss of her children. And that's accomplished without making those eyes look human. Those eyes very much look at cat's eyes to me. Um, and so a lot of credit to Kelly Jones there. And I did want to note, according to High Bender's Sandman Companion, originally, actually, Kelly Jones wasn't supposed to do the art for this issue. After doing the art for Calliope, according to Kelly Jones, Karen Berger was looking for someone else to maybe do the art for this one. Um, however, um, apparently she had trouble finding someone according to Kelly Jones. Nobody else wanted to touch the script um, for the simple reason that all the characters in it were cats. Um, hmm. And so he ended up doing it. And I think, you know, he did a great job given that cats were not something I think he particularly had done before. And so the effectiveness of the art just sells this a lot in a way that if this was pure prose, it wouldn't mean nearly as much as I think it does to us. Um, seeing the cats. Although I think it's fair for us at this point, Glenn, if it's not obvious for the listener, for you and I to point out, you and I are what some people would call cat people. <laughs> yes, this is absolutely true. And so I think that's a big part. That is a big part of why this appeals to, to, to both of us. You're absolutely right to point this out. I kind of take for granted that the art is this good, but of course it could have been very bad. It could have looked cartoonish, but each of these cats looks uh, the, the cats all look like people and each cat looks like an individual. Uh, Kelly Jones has done a, a magnificent job with giving different facial expressions to the cats, having them hold their heads in different ways, right? They actually look like real cats too. And so they look like different individuals and look like people in the same way that, you know, my two cats look like people to me, but also have real distinctions and, uh, and different and, and personality traits that I can see in their eyes and the way they carry their body and so on. And he's absolutely nailed it. And yeah, you're right. This issue lives or dies by that. 
So, um, the Siamese prays and prays to the darkness, to the night, to the carrion kind, as you mentioned. And as she prays, she also ends up dreaming. And then we immediately cut to an image of her in a field surrounded by uh, skeletal bones, particularly of uh, heads of various creatures. And a a bird flies up, but, but the bird, its wings are kind of all kind of falling apart, and it has no flesh at all uh, on its neck or on its head. And the Siamese identifies the bird as a crow instead of a raven, which is what you'd expect from the kind of word balloon that we usually see this attached to when attached to a bird. Right. This looks like the speech that we have come to associate with Matthew. And so I read this as being... Matthew here, though, of course, what it really looks like to me in the art, because uh, it has a body with feathers on it, like the wings have feathers, the body has feathers, but the skull has nothing on it. It, Of course, actually looks like a a buzzard. But I definitely thought that this was Matthew, even though she identifies this bird as a crow later. I took that to be an indication that when she does this in speech, when she calls this bird a crow, that's her being dismissive of birds that she doesn't really know the difference between a crow and a raven and just calls that type of bird a crow. Well, and given cats sometimes antagonism towards birds, then maybe there is some dismissiveness there, um, which I hadn't thought of before. And it does very much, you're right. It does kind of look like a vulture. I do want to say that even if this is a raven, it sounds far more eloquent and uh, worldly and wise than Matthew tends to sound to us. But I'm wondering if, independent of whether it's Matthew or some other raven, the reason why we're seeing the image or she's thinking it's an image of a crow other than some bias she might have is if this is in a dream state and she's thinking about the carrion kind and she's thinking about kind of then the morbid things associated with that, that then the crow is more associated with that than the raven. Um, and, that so that's the reason why even if it's a raven to her it's being depicted as a crow with no uh, flesh on its head going back to the the eloquence with which this raven is speaking and the the lack of the use of words like boss or just in general the lack of sounding like he's from queens or something like that <laughs> we we should remember and we will talk about this when we get to the end of the issue that we are not objectively seeing this from a third-person perspective, right? This is a story that is being told to us by a character in the frame of the story about this little kitten. So this is all secondhand or maybe thirdhand, actually. I lost track of how many how many <laughs> levels down we are, but at least second, if not thirdhand, right? So the this is not an accurate representation of the conversation that she had with whatever this bird is, whether it's Matthew or just some dead crow. But I think um, to focus on the crow, raven, bird, to focus on the bird's uh, speech and what it says, um, I think it's particularly noteworthy and it's kind of a fun description of kind of the realm of dream. The Siamese says that she has come for justice and revelation and wisdom. And the response of the bird is justice is a delusion you will not find on this or any other sphere. And wisdom, wisdom is no part of dreams, lithe walker, though dreams are a part of the sum of each life's experiences, which is the only wisdom that matters. But revelation, that is the province of dream. 
Right. And at this point, then the, the story takes the form of a hero quest. We've got uh, magical helpers. I mean, that's what this bird is. There's some obstacles. And we're even going to get something that looks at least a little bit like a journey through the underworld and, and I think functions that way as well. And so this bird, Matthew or, or not, sends her uh, to look for uh, Dream in his cave. That's where he's going to, that's where she's going to get her revelation, though the way will be dangerous. And so now on this hero quest, she crosses the desert of bones and then the wood of ghosts, the cold places and the wetness, and then the darkness. This is uh, the void where everything was sucked from her, she says. And eventually then she came to the mountain of the Cat of Dreams. And here we see some familiar faces guarding the entrance to a cave. It's uh, the griffin, the pegasus, and the dragon that we have seen around Dream's Palace in previous issues. So it seems that just as we have seen Dream appear differently to different human cultures, and also to the Martian Manhunter, it seems then that there is a version of the dreaming that conforms to how cats perceive the world as well, but still bears many of the same attributes and has the same people there. So this is our first kind of familiar faces, if unless that was Matthew. Um, and so we do have the guardians. And so we do know you are the cat. The Siamese cat has seems to have found what she is looking for, which is this is where dream is. But she is warned by the uh, guardians that dreams have their price. Yeah, I love the way that the guardians interact with this cat as well. They have their own personalities and uh, are pretty tough with her, right? They actually are acting as guardians. They're not just like decorations. They're not just statuary here, as we've kind of seen them be before. They are servants of dream and are protecting him, or at least, you know, serving as door wardens, right? They're deciding who gets in and who doesn't. And we don't get we don't dwell at all on her hero's journey. We do get really straight to the the end here because what's really going to matter is the interaction with Dream. But we do on one page, we get six panels that take us through these other locations. And they are very cool looking. Kelly Jones has, has nailed this part of the art as well. But I was especially interested in this location in the Dreaming called the Wood of Ghosts. And she says that this is where the dead and the lost whispered continually, uh, promised her worlds if she would only stop and play with them. And what really interested me about this is that this is in the dreaming, right? That this is not in hell. So are these really dead people or are these just, are these nightmares? I wasn't sure at this point whether this is an outer part of dreaming or if it's that that has nightmares in it or if... This is that she's journeying through a number of realms before ending up in the dreaming. And so she is wandering through, you know, aspects of hell and purgatory and parts of the afterlife that we see referenced elsewhere in the Sandman comics, because it very much sounds like, you know, something that would be a temptation if you were visiting, you know, the underworld in a, in a Greek play or something in terms of like voices telling you just to stay here and, and, and not move on. Yeah. I definitely thought that all of this was taking place in the dreaming, but I had also just not considered that maybe it's not, that maybe she's crossing different realms. I still think I'm going to go with she's in the dreaming, but I would love to hear what listeners have to say about that as well. And of course, part of why this really jumped out to me is that we had the wood of suicides in mm-hmm. the, in when, when we went to hell in the issue, a hope in 
hell. Uh, there's the parallel there really struck me. And I'm wondering, you know, if the dreaming being kind of a, a place that both spawns and nurtures and sustains ideas themselves that maybe every realm that otherwise exists in this cosmology does have aspects within the dreaming where it's just kind of visions of those places that are occurring in dreams and nightmares. And they're not, you're not actually journeying to hell when you dream that you're going to hell, you are in a part of the dreaming that just looks like a version of hell. So like everything I've ever dreamed about, of course, has to exist in the dreaming. This is true for all of us. And wow, we do mostly dream about our own stupid, mundane, boring lives, right? So, <laughs> oh man, so many cubicles in the dreaming. There's a lot of commuting in the dreaming, just lots <laughs> lots of commuting, which is, I guess, the reason why when Dream first got free, that's the reason why he found someone who's commuting and then someone, you know, going to a dinner party is because this is what we have. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it worked. It works out. And I think we're actually going to see some more commuting uh, in, in issues to come. Well, uh, let's go meet Dream here. So in this version of the Dreaming, in this story, Dream is a giant black cat with eyes of stars. Now, our cat wants to understand, she says. She wants to know why humans have the power to take her children from her, right? Why do cats live as they do? Why do cats live at the mercy of humans? And Dream shows her. He shows her that long ago, cats were the rulers of the world. They were the apex predator of planet Earth. Cats were large and humans were small. And the humans were kept as pets by the cats, right? The humans would groom them and, and, and pet the cats and feed them during the daytime. But at night, then the cats would hunt these tiny humans the way that they hunt mice now. But there arose among the humans one who did not want to be subservient. And he had a dream. He had a plan. Each night, he says to the other humans, each night, dreams create the world anew. And so if enough humans dreamed the same dream at the same time, they could bring into existence a world in which humans are the masters and cats, the subservient pets. And it worked. And here's what the, the cat says here. One night, enough of them dreamed. It did not take many of them. A thousand, perhaps. No more. And they brought this present world into existence. And they also made it so that this world was always the world. They erased the other existence entirely. Uh, and the dream says, uh, they changed the universe from the beginning of all things until the end of time. Now, there are a ton, I think, of metaphysical questions that we could ask here. But one thing that I am interested in about this, that we can use as kind of an entry point here, is that the cat says that the world of the humans had metal machines. And then the art shows us what is pretty clearly the 20th century. So is all of our history before cars then just artificial? It's, it's something that didn't really happen, but that exists simply to provide depth for this new reality? I mean, that is a good question is, you know, at what point did, does this story occur? Um, at what point is any of this and how much of this is the Siamese misinterpreting what's going on and just interposing what her experiences are with what humans are like now versus a different time. I think, I think when you, even when you reflect on history, you oftentimes will bias things to, um, what is familiar to you. Correct. So it could just be that in hearing this tale, she's just imagining humans did this recently versus did this thousands or millions of years ago, even. 
Right. And I, I think that's the other question that we have to ask here, or at least another question that we have to ask, which is, do we think that anything that we're seeing here is meant to be objectively true? And I mean, literally seeing, I guess, the, the depiction of the art, but also the, the story, right? Is this something that actually happened? Is this story true? Or is this just a story that cats tell? The same way that we had this question all the way back in Tales in the, the Sand when we were asking this about the veracity, the objectiveness, the objective truthness of the story about Nada. And we don't know how much of the story is objectively true versus and factually accurate to things that occurred versus not. And it's in some ways, maybe it's not important because it may also just be that it's the telling of this tale and it's the purpose that the Siamese has kind of jumping ahead, but the purpose that the Siamese has of wandering the world and telling this is all that she is doing to kind of fill the void that is left by the loss of her children and the kind of revulsion she feels about what the humans did. Right. So this is her purpose. And if her purpose is tell the tale, then, you know, she tells the tale in the way that is helpful for her to tell. And it's the telling of the tale that's significant for her, maybe even more so than getting anyone to do what she's suggesting. Right. And there there are different layers to this story, different layers that we could perceive as being close to an objective truth, right? Uh, we could suggest that the whole thing is actually just an invention of this cat for her own self-serving purposes, maybe just delusional in her own grief or something like that. But could also be that we are really meant to believe that this story is 100% true the exact way that it's being told. But there are ways of looking at it in between, too. And one of them could be that she had a dream. She had this dream. She did encounter dream as a as a cat who told her this story. But that story might not be true. Dream may have lied to her because what she needed was comfort mm-hmm. in that moment, right? The dream was trying to help her by telling her this story, right? That that's the power that he had was to give her something to help her go back to the waking world and live a life even with even though this tragedy has happened to her to give her another purpose in this world and uh, i hadn't thought about that until now but that might actually be my headcanon now i mean i think it also affects the lens by which you view the depiction of the human who rose amongst them and had the idea as depicted in the way she describes him as well as in the art um although to varying degrees, depending on what's going on with the coloring in the comic um, due to limitations in the original printing versus the recolored. Um, But he's described as a golden furred male. And so we have the depiction here. If this is objectively true, then it feels like a very tropey, you know, white male savior of the human race. (laughs) Um, But if we instead think of it as just as this is the way she is interpreting the tale that is being told to her by dream um or the way she is retelling the tale independent of what dream did to describe it um it could be that actually this is the antagonist she's describing she is describing a male that maybe resembles we never hear a description of what color hair and whether it's golden furred or not is the color hair of the the man who threw her children in the water to to drown but if we view it as this is kind of the lens by which she's telling it, and this is actually the antagonist and not the savior of humanity, but instead it's not human's viewpoint that matters at all here. It's the cat's viewpoint. And so then I think we can set aside the idea that this is just a really terrible 
an antiquated and silly trope about like there is one savior and that savior of course is a white male um with blonde hair i've always looked at this person in this image and just thought that's charlton heston (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if it's just because this has real planet of the apes vibes this little story here and it's basically planet of the cats Right. Yes. Uh, or if it actually does look like Charlton Heston in, in some way. Well, it helps that the other humans are not speaking around him. And so like similar to Charlton <laughs> Heston in Planet of the Apes, he is the only one who is speaking right. out loud, at least, you know, for a good chunk of the first film. And later, you know, there's other people, but still he's the one who's talking and there's just, you know, a man and a couple women who are naked, who are listening in, intentively on what he is saying. So, yeah, I, I can see that. Well, as you've alluded to already, Brent, the the takeaway lesson here, right, is that if the world can be remade by a thousand dreamers once, it can be remade by a thousand dreamers again. And so that is what this cat, our, our narrator, that's what she is doing. She travels from community to community. She shares her story and she tries to get cats to dream her dream of restoring the cat world, trying to get a thousand cats to dream this same dream in order to reshape the world and this is the end of her story. And so we finish up the issue then back in the the frame narrative, back in the story of this kitten. And the kitten is really excited about this. But the older cat who brought it here just thinks that this was an amusing tale. And at any rate, this cat says, it is impossible to get a thousand cats to do anything at the same time. So even if this story is true, the plan is just never going to work. And we finish up back at the house with the kitten's new family, where the couple is having breakfast and and watching this kitten dream. And it seems like this kitten is dreaming about hunting. Probably some small animal is what her humans say. But we know that this kitten is dreaming about hunting tiny humans. And that is the end of this issue. And uh, and before we get into the, the cover and our, our favorite panels, I, I just want to say again that I really love this issue. And uh, it may not be as chewy, I guess, as some that we have done recently. I mean, even going all the way back to Doll's House. But as I said at the top of the show, it is charming and, and really even kind of refreshing at this point. And as we have said, I think several times already, you and I are both cat people, right? So this is an issue that just seems made specifically for us. And it's, it's got a great story to it being about how you have an idea and if you convince enough other people beings to kind of also have a similar idea, then you can achieve world transformational kind of activities. You know, it's, it's being the change you want to see in the world and influencing others to do kind of similar. And ultimately, if you get enough beings that do that, then it really can change things. And I think in the history of kind of the development of intellectual and philosophical thought, that's what you see. You see these revolutions where slowly people have ideas and things reach tipping points, right? Um, In terms of even struggles that we're having today in terms of civil rights and civil liberties, it's, it's a matter of reaching tipping points before we acknowledge truths that should be obvious and be admitted all along and to, to be able to, to treat people um, as fellow people. And, and so I, I really like kind of, it's a simple story, um, but I think it works. And I think it works a lot based on the strength of Kelly Jones's art. 
Absolutely. And uh, I'm really happy about that because I was critical of the art back in Calliope, though I think you were right that it was just an ugly story and therefore it was hard to find beauty in that art. Whereas this is a, a beautiful story that is about hope. This is an optimistic story, even though it's got some tragedy as the background for it, as the motivation for it. This is an uplifting story. This is a civil rights story, right? This is a story about rising up and overthrowing your oppressors and creating a, a, a better world. And the art is just absolutely gorgeous. I want to take a moment, unless it's going to be one of your favorite panels, to talk about how Morpheus is depicted. So here we have Dream depicted, you know, as a cat. And the Annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger has a quote from uh, the script by Neil Gaiman in which he's describing that, quote, we're looking at a huge jet black cat. And I mean huge. It's It's larger than a panther, but it's a cat, not a panther. The proportions are different. Uh, the eyes are eyes of flame, red and yellow. It seems almost to absorb light. This is where the initial idea for the story came from. Seeing a black cat as I was driving, just sitting, watching the traffic go by, looking like a patch of shadow, a patch of blackness with eyes, and a little patch of white. The Siamese is at its feet, not sitting, but standing. It looks very nervous. They're in an underground cavern stalactites and stalagmites lit by a circular pale light floating by the Sandman cat's head. So I I really like the way that um, Neil Gaiman kind of envisioned this cat would look this, you know, the dream, the the catamorphic version (laughs) of dream here. Um, And then Kelly Jones execution where he very much does look like a house cat, but the proportions are completely off, particularly when next to the Siamese. Um, and it's very ominous. Um, and particularly because it's kind of drawn as if it's from the Siamese's viewpoint. So it's looking up at dream as a cat and the way that the eyes are kind of, um, you know, blazing. And dream is kind of a shaggy cat too. This is like a, like a medium haired cat. There's a lot of detail in the way that, again, the way that the cats are depicted as, as being different from each other, that it's not just that dream is a black cat and is large, but not a panther, definitely a cat. It also has a different type of hair than the Siamese cat. And I also like that, you know, what would dream as a cat be doing? At least what would a Siamese's version of what, dream of the endless would look like in his throne room. He would look like a large black cat who's just chilling on like a ledge. And, you know, there's, there's a, you know, some skulls and maybe a circular pattern on the floor of the throne room, but you know, it's not a chair. The throne is just a ledge, you know, and just very much kind of, there's no sun here. So not really sunning himself in, in that way, but just kind of relaxing in a way that, you know, we might think of as looking very lazy, (laughs) (laughs) um, but to the view of the Siamese, this is, you know, something that is very secure in its domain, um, and very comfortable where it is and everything is just so the rock is shaped in such a way that it seems to perfectly hold, you know, each element of his legs and, you know, allow his tail just to flop slightly off of it. Yeah, well, right. Cats love caves and they also love perches. And our two cats love to come down here in the basement, where I am recording from, and we have installed perches for them. We've got one one for each of them, though, of course, they find their own perches as well. And it's their favorite place to be in the house is down here in the cave, but 
the highest place they can get in the cave. This is uh, their safe place, right? So yeah, all the cat behavior here is absolutely nailed. Uh, while we're just kind of talking generically about the issue before we get into our uh, our checklist that we normally do, I want to say one more thing about my household, which is just to say that uh, I was reading this again in, in bed last night and uh, my wife, uh, Elizabeth, came in with our uh, seven-month-old son and... Uh, I hadn't thought about it, but uh, he had not looked at a comic book before. He and I spent a lot of time reading together. I read uh, prose books uh, to him. We just finished up reading the uh, second book or third book, depending on how you count, in Susan Cooper's uh, The Dark is Rising sequence. We also have a lot of picture books and a lot of board books that we read uh, together sitting on my lap, but he'd not ever read a comic book before. This was the first comic book that he'd ever seen, and he thought the art was great too. He loved this. We wound up going through it page by page uh, from the beginning. And he just wanted to look at every panel. Like he wanted to put his face in it. And he clearly just looked at each individual panel. He was really drawn to this art. And it was just delightful to see. I mean, he's just grinning the whole time he was going through this. It was really cool. Well, let's uh, let's get into our checklist here. So let's talk about the, the, the cover first. Uh, this is an old wooden picture frame. And then Inside of it, there's, a, I guess, what we would think of maybe as probably a painting here, right? In, inside of it, what is on this painting shows us a, a cat jumping. Uh, I guess there's kind of like a, a Van Gogh-looking sky behind it. I'm not quite sure how I would describe it, but I really enjoyed this. I think it looks very cool. And I think that the, the frame, the whole idea of this is a really nice nod to the fact that this is a frame story. And there's also uh, a skull of a bird that's been painted, and it's an actual bird skull that is part of the frame. It's above the A um, in a dream, um, which is, I think, you know, whether it's Matthew or it's some crow being or whatever is probably related to, to what's going on there. So in the context of it's the dream that if the crow's head is part of the dreaming, right, and then everything else painted gold, which is the wall as well as the frame itself, are part of the dreaming, then the dream kind of both holds the cat and it also, the way out is to go through kind of dreaming about things because there's a break, right, on the uh, left corner of the frame where the cat is and there's a way out there in which, you know, otherwise it's, you know, there's not a lot of kind of organic feel to a, the frame itself and the wall, um, but there is a way um, and kind of a hope for this cat that if only we can work together, then here is the way out. Yeah, it's a clear hole, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to use the language of the cats. Yeah, I think this is a beautiful cover and I'm, I'm looking forward to, well, I'll just say this. Yeah, I think this is a beautiful cover. This is one that really, really appeals to me. I would like to hang this one on the, the wall. Actually, what I'd really like is not to hang this image on the wall, but to actually get this picture, right? To get this frame and uh, and hang that on my wall. Well, we should talk about the title. I, I guess to me, this seemed pretty straightforward, but maybe you've got some other readings of the title, Brent. I don't. Um, it's about the, you know, what is necessary to do this, which is a dream of a thousand cats. Um, and in that way, I guess it's there never will be probably because of the difficulty to get cats to do something <laughs> together, uh, which we see in the story. Um, but I think it's the fact that, well, it's, it's, it's a dream that they need it's a dream that they will dream. Like it's just kind of layers upon layers there, which is maybe a little simplistic, but, um, but I think that it works cause I think it's a nice kind of direct, um, title and it, it, 
it catches a lot of things because it's not just like, you know, the vengeance tale of the Siamese, right? <laughs> right. Although I would watch that movie. I don't know what, I don't know what that movie is. And it's also not, um, you know, what cats dream of, right? It's not, cause I mean, ultimately that's what we're left with is there's the little kitten that looks like it's hunting something and in its dream, it's probably hunting humans. Um, but instead it's that, you know, there's a goal here in terms of the dream of a thousand cats. Um, and so I think that it's kind of an empowering tale in that way. Again, if but a thousand cats could do something just as but if but a thousand perhaps humans can decide that one thing is something that's worth doing, then we might be able to remake the world ourselves. Um, even if it doesn't benefit cats for us to remake that, there may be ways for us to continue to make everything better for all of humans as a whole by us cooperating and building more things into kind of, you know, a social contract or other things. And I guess the the dream is functioning here in the title as a kind of double entendre and the, the way that we use dream to refer to the weird stories that our brain shows to us while we're asleep, uh, but also in the way that we say things like the American dream or uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. speech, the, I, I have a dream. Uh, of an optimistic, hopeful vision of the future or or, or the, the way that things are supposed to or the way that things could be, right? It is being deployed in both of those senses here in the title. So yeah, I think it's a it's a great title. So what's your what's your favorite panel, Brent? Well, uh, I'm assuming you're going for the splash panel. Um, so I decided <laughs> to, um, I went back and forth because there's a lot of panels I really like. As we've talked about, there's a lot of Kelly Jones's art here about how he depicts the cats that really works for me. But what I ultimately went with was one where the cat is merely in kind of profile um, or silhouette rather, um, which is at the beginning of the Siamese starting her tale. Um, there is an image uh, where it's taking up a third of the top of the page where she is sitting on the head of a statue of an angel. And she says, I was not always as you see me today. Once many yesterdays gone, I, like many of you, was in the thrall of human beings, uh, living in their world, playing a uh, plaything, possession, and toy. So it's a black cat sitting on the statue. And the statue is largely somewhat in shadow. The fact that it's an angel, it's also a messenger. It's bringing this tale. Um, the angel is cast partially in shadow, which makes it seem kind of weird mixture of anger and also sad. And I think that that kind of wraps up a lot of what the Siamese hopes to deliver in this message. She's telling a tragic tale. She's telling her tale, but she's also trying to bring a message of how to make things better and perhaps even provide some revenge or vengeance, you know, for um, her children and, and other cats. Um, and I really just like that combination of things and the amount of detail that went into the statue here and the feathers of the wings um, and the way the inks are kind of used. I just really, really like it, um, even though it's a very simplistic view of a cat. But it, the, the way the hair on the cat, the way the fur kind of looks in the silhouette just works really well for me because there's just a certain amount of chaos there, which you'd expect. Um, but it also clearly doesn't seem like it's going over the top in terms of a uh, impression of a cat. It looks like it, like this is what a, a cat would look like. 
Yeah, the fact that this story is being told to this collection of cats in a cemetery is not just cool because it has a real gothic feel to it. It it does a lot of other things too. I mean, one, of course, cats do love cemeteries. One of the reasons they love cemeteries is that it is a space in an urban or suburban area that has plant life, which is to say that it has rodents, right? Uh, so it's good hunting ground. So of course, cats, we definitely associate with cemeteries for that reason. But situating the story in this cemetery also allows for an image like this with the cat on top of uh, an on top of an angel uh, on top of a symbol of all three Abrahamic religions. And this cat is a preacher, right? This is mm-hmm. a sermon that she's delivering. She is proselytizing. She is trying to convert people to her belief system, her belief that dreams can literally reshape the material world and and even the way that she begins this speech is with the language of religious community she says sisters brothers good hunting uh, the good hunting is not necessarily religious language right but the sisters and brothers this is how uh, or at least certainly one way that faith communities refer to each other and so I think that this really works to to highlight this in addition to just looking really cool. This was on my short list for favorite panels as well. Well, what was your favorite panel, Glenn? Well, I really do want to pick them all. I really did love the art in this issue. Uh, now, you weren't wrong to, I think, expect me to pick the uh, the title page with the, the two-page splash of the cats loitering, loitering around a hillside necropolis, but that is actually not what I have picked. Uh, I have picked another landscape image, and this is the cat in the Desert of Bones with the, the crow, or maybe it's Matthew the Raven, flying overhead. I love both of these images, both of these sort of landscape or, or scenery depictions. I would hang either of them up in my home, but uh, this one, the, the Desert of Bones, this one has a more, uh, I guess, fantastical feel, whereas the Necropolis has this this gothic feel. And the, the fantastical feeling really spoke to me in this issue. It's one of the things that I really liked about this issue was that it felt wondrous in ways that some of the stories that we've been getting so far have felt weird. And it's very different from the way the world looks in the rest of the issue when you know, the cat is experiencing things outside of the tail. Right. It's significantly brighter and it is zoomed way out in a way that even the, uh, the necropolis image is, is not, it has a lot more going on in the, the foreground. And, and really the whole thing does kind of look like uh, a Western, right? Like this, it's a, a Sergio Leone establishing shot or something like that of this, uh, this desert of bones to let us know that we're in a uh, chivalric romance set uh, in uh, Utah in 1880 or something like that. But in this case, it's the dreaming circa we're not quite sure when. Well, now that I am in a mind to both watch uh, Spaghetti Westerns and also a uh, Planet of the Apes marathon, uh, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz, off to go crawl in caves and look for dream cats. <laughs> you can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. Please come visit us on the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of this story. We had some questions. You can chime in on whether this is Matthew or a crow or some different dream raven. Also, the metaphysical questions that uh, we got into a a little bit here in this issue. And uh, also, if you just want to tell us stories about cats or pictures of your cats, we like cats. So that would be awesome as well. And for those of you who don't like cats, um, I'm I'm sorry, uh, but... 
assuming then that maybe you're a dog person or have some other kind of uh, animal that you prefer, what would Morpheus the Dream Lord look like if represented as a dog or whatever animal you choose if it's not a cat? I hope we've got a listener out there who has turtles, who really loves turtles. I would love to see Dream depicted <laughs> as a turtle. Well, and if you would like to support the network and vote to choose what we cover between Sandman volumes, which is coming up pretty soon here because this is a short one, uh, we hope that you'll check us out on patreon.com slash Media. And next time, we'll discuss the only comic book to ever win a World Fantasy Award, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And until then, good hunting.